0: Good morning. Go ahead and open up a Bible to 2 Samuel 12. If you're using the the Bible that's in chairs in front of you, it's page 271. 2 Samuel tells the story of King David, one of the most famous ancient kings in all the world. And if you only know one story about King David, you most likely know the story of David and Goliath. If you only know two stories about King David, probably the one we're looking at today is the second story that you know, the second most famous story about King David. It is his miserable failure uh, as he saw a woman who was not his wife, Bathsheba, and in his internal lust and desire for her, he sent and had her taken and brought to him and he assaulted her and she became pregnant. And then he deceived and tried to hide and cover that up. And when that didn't work, he, he had her husband, Uriah, killed. And what we looked at last week is in chapter 11 tells the story of that downward descent. And we saw that sin looks pleasant. It looks promising. It appears like this: it's, it's the path we want to take, but each step is deeper and darker and leads to more destructive territory. We kind of ask the question, how, how did David get here? How do we get there in our own lives as we take steps into further destruction? But that raises another question of what is God going to do with David in his sin? It's jarring to us it's shocking as you read this we we think david's the good guy he's he's god's chosen king he is the one described as being a man after god's own heart and the stories leading up to this were showing david's integrity and and everything good it was looking like david was going to to follow god and take these right steps in leading this nation in righteousness and justice and godliness and but yet now he's he's stuck in this in this deep pit of destruction. And what is God going to do? Is he going to abandon David? He's going to kill David? Is he going to, to like Saul, p- pick some other king to raise up? And it, it leads to a question for us in our own lives as well. What is God going to do with us in our sin? How is God going to respond when you get stuck? When, you're, when you've taken steps down that path, and that might be why you're here today. Maybe you, maybe this is your first time back in church in a long time. Or, or you've been coming, but yet you realize, I'm, I've been just gradually taking steps further and further away from God. And you, you find yourself coming, hoping, but yet you're not sure. What's God going to do with me? Has he given up on me? Is he going to abandon me? How is God going to deal with With me in my sin. And what we will see in chapter 12 is that God pursues his children to rescue us from our sin with severe mercy that leads to repentance and restoration. It's a big sentence. Let me say it again. God pursues his children in our sin to to rescue us from our sin with severe mercy that leads to our repentance and restoration. Let's start reading 2 Samuel 12, verse 1. The, the phrase right before this, the way chapter 11 ended, was the, what David did was evil in the Lord's sight. The Lord was displeased. So now, now we see the Lord's response. So the Lord sent Nathan to David. And when he arrived, he said to him, there were two men in a certain city, one rich, the other poor. The rich man had very large flocks and herds, but the poor man had nothing except one small ewe lamb that he had bought. He raised her and she grew up with him, with his children. From his meager food, she would eat. From his cup, she would drink. In his arms, she would sleep. She was like a daughter to him. Now a traveler came to the rich man, but the rich man could not bring himself to take one of his own sheep or cattle to prepare for the traveler who had come to him. So instead, he took the poor man's lamb and prepared it for his guest. David was infuriated with the man. And he said to Nathan, as the Lord lives, the man who did this deserves to die Because he has done this thing and shown no pity, he must pay four lambs for that lamb. Nathan replied to David, you are the man. This is what the Lord God of Israel says. I anointed you king over Israel and I rescued you from Saul. I I gave your master's house to you and your master's wives into your arm. And I, I gave you the house of Israel and Judah. And if that was not enough, I would have given you even more. Why then have you despised the Lord's command by doing what I consider evil? You struck down Uriah the Hethite with the sword and took his wife as your own wife. You murdered him with the Ammonite sword. Now, therefore, the sword will never leave your house because you despised me and you took the wife of Uriah the Hethite to be your own wife This is what the Lord says. I'm going to bring disaster on you from your own family. I will take your wives and give them to another before your very eyes, and he will sleep with them in broad daylight. You acted in secret, but I will do this before all Israel and in broad daylight. I want to start by looking at the first half of this sentence. God pursues his children to rescue us from our sin with severe mercy. David probably thought he's gotten away with it. A lot of time has passed. Bathsheba is now his wife. They've had this son. It's been born. So it's been at least nine months. We don't know how old the, the young child is. And, and David isn't looking for a rescue here in this moment. We, we don't. Stuck in our sin. We don't want to be confronted. We don't want a prophet to come speak to us of our sin. But but looking back on this, David realized this is God's mercy to him. Looking back on this, David realized how how from the inside out he was rotting. His bones were, were withering away. And the Lord sent a prophet to David. This is, these are words of grace. These are words of mercy, and even though David at first probably would have bristled at this, the fact that the Lord takes initiative here to go rescue David from his sin, those are words of salvation, words of life. The worst thing that God could have done for David at this time would have been to leave him, to leave him in his sin, to leave him in his path of destruction as it kept getting worse and worse. So God sends Nathan. If you read chapter 11, the word sent shows up a bunch. David sent for Bathsheba. He sent for Uriah. And now the Lord takes the initiative. David's David's own conscience tormenting him and the amount of time, neither of those things were leading David to repentance. God had to act. God had to take initiative and send a rescue plan of his word to David. So those words, the Lord sent Nathan to David. That's the greatest news, signs of life. And Nathan creatively exposes David's sin. If you just for a second think about Nathan's perspective of this, David has already shown that he's willing to kill to keep this sin hidden. And he has all the power to do that again with this prophet. But Nathan creatively comes to David and and tells him a story. He describes this rich man who had everything and this poor man who had one little lamb and describes it in a way like you've probably seen people who treat their pets as if they're children, The, the disgustingness of this lamb eating and drinking out of the guy's cup and Maybe you like that, I don't know. But the the way that he's treating this lamb like this child, like this daughter and pulling at the emotions here of of how this poor man had this one innocent lamb that he loved and the rich man took it because he didn't wanna sacrifice one of his own lambs for a meal. So he takes, takes, and, and David says, this man deserves death. It's a bit of an overreaction. Actually, the the Mosaic law didn't require death for stealing of an animal. It did require what David said next, that he, he should repay fourfold for that lamb. But David says, this man, he's infuriated with this man. And then Nathan turns it on him and says, David, you are this man. David realizes all that God had given him, all that he had, And that it wasn't enough, he had to take and take and take. He's he's overwhelmed with the exposure of his own sin. His eyes are open. He he realizes what what he's done. And, And the way that Nathan then describes it is you didn't just sin against Bathsheba. You didn't just sin against Uriah, You didn't just sin against the the other soldiers and their families who who died in your arranged murder of Uriah. Nathan says to David, you primarily sinned against God. This is is God's word to David. Verse 9, he says, Why then have you despised the Lord's command by doing what I consider evil? Verse 10, because you despised me. Verse 14, because you've treated me with such contempt in this matter. And so the Lord's word to David is that in your sin, in these steps toward destruction, what you have done is you've shown contempt, like you don't care about what I have said. You don't care about the path of life that I have laid out for you. And you've despised all that. And you've despised me. You've sinned against me, David, and my word. And God is here by means of his grace and his mercy rescuing David. It's a severe mercy. It's a harsh mercy. It's an uncomfortable mercy, but it is good. David needed to hear this. He needed someone to come alongside and point this out to him. For, for us, we need this as well. Don't despise The way that the Lord is pursuing you, to confront you in your sin, to to reveal ways that you're drifting, ways that you've you've taken steps toward destruction. Regardless of how far you are on that, when someone comes and points that out, and maybe a friend starts asking questions that start to reveal something in your heart, Or, or a spouse, or a counselor, or an elder, or a pastor someone in your life who cares about you, who sees something and they're, they're coming to you and they're asking questions to, to begin to reveal something in your heart, to understand what's going on in your heart, we'd be wise to appreciate that, to see that as God's merciful pursuit. In the moment, at first, we, we react and we, we don't want that, but but to see the wisdom, to see the grace, to see the mercy in, in having friends, having people in our lives, or, or maybe it's just in your own Bible reading, or maybe it's in, this, in a sermon like this, where God uses His Word to begin to open your eyes to expose your sin, for us to see that as actually God's good and kind mercy. But Nathan doesn't just show David his sin. This is where it starts to become more severe, more difficult, because he also shows David the consequences of that sin. As he is describing this, he says, the sword will never leave your house. Disaster will be on you from your own family. He He goes on to describe how the consequences of David's sexual sin and adultery, is it's going to, to reap and, and spread into his family, and sexual sin is going to continue to, to be part of David's family's story. You read about that in chapters 13 and 14. The next two chapters is David's own daughter is raped by her half-brother. And later in chapter 18, as Absalom, David's son, is sleeping with or assaulting David's concubines or wives, the, the, the sexual sin that just keeps spreading as a consequence of David's sin. And then in verse 14, Nathan says, your son is going to die. In, in fact, David loses four sons if, as you read through the whole story. And that, that reminds us of what David said, the, the fourfold lamb repayment. As David committed murder, there are four of his sons that he will lose In in the civil wars and in the fights, there's this infant son here, and we'll talk about that even a little bit later, but then there's, there's Amnon, who is murdered by his brother Absalom, and Absalom, who dies in civil war as he is, is revolting against David, his own father, and he's trying to take the throne from his father, and Absalom is killed in battle. And then later when Adonijah, another one of David's sons, is, is trying to, to usurp the throne and Solomon has him killed, death and, and destruction is just continuing to spread these consequences of sin in David's life. It's, it's helpful for us to see that even when there is repentance and full forgiveness, sin does still lead to consequences. But, but I, want, I don't want us to, to forget that. I want us to really believe that. But I think there's also a, a clarification I want to make that sometimes we can take this story and misapply it to sicknesses or deaths that are happening around us in our own life. Like, this story of David losing this infant son is a really difficult one to read. And and you can identify some maybe with the grief that David was experiencing in this. And later in the story, we won't read it today, but he's he's fasting and agonizing and begging God to save his son's life. But, But beyond David, think of Bathsheba. Recently lost her husband. And now losing this child too—just the the pain, the hurt that is there—and and sometimes couples or people will will look at then suffering or sicknesses in their own life. And a couple will experience a miscarriage or infertility, and 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 think, "Oh, is this God's judgment for some specific sin in me?" Or just other suffering—is—is is God doing this? Is God—is God bringing this judgment on me? And Jesus actually warned us from making that connection ourselves. Here, Nathan the prophet gives David this very clear word from God. But the disciples tried to do this same thing in John chapter 9 when they saw a man who was blind. And they said, who sinned, this man or his parents? And Jesus told them, no, neither. He corrected their thinking and was showing that this this man was blind because God was going to receive more glory. And the way that the Bible usually is describing our suffering in this world is showing that it's, it is a result of sin and the, the fall and the curse, but not necessarily direct correlation to some specific sin in our lives. So that's, that's helpful for us to not take this passage and apply it specifically in that way to our own sicknesses, our own suffering. And yet, there is still a truth that sin brings consequences That the effects of sin aren't always erased by our repentance and our forgiveness. Repentance and and forgiveness doesn't always mean that a marriage is going to stay together. Repentance and and full forgiveness doesn't always mean that there there won't be prison or that there there won't be a fine or there won't be a ticket. We can't say to the police officer, I'm repenting. You can't give me this ticket. No, there are still consequences that come. That's maybe a light one, but, but there are serious consequences for our sins. And those, those themselves are also severe, merciful warnings for us. It's, it's God's good grace in that as well. In Hebrews, it talks about how the Lord disciplines or, or chastens those that he loves. And in that, it's, a, it's designed to, to point us to life. It's, it's designed to teach us and to, to show us that our greatest hope is in God. And those consequences, those warnings are actually there and they aren't pleasant and they don't feel good and they are scary when you're looking at what could happen in my future. But they are there as God's merciful warnings to us to to rescue us from that path of destruction and put us back on and lead us in and keep us in and hold us fast in the way that leads to life. Kids, for you, often this is gonna come through your parents. And and that can be difficult sometimes and annoying and you you don't want the correction. But for you to to somehow be able to, to recognize this is God's good gift to me, to expose my heart of sin and to, to help me see God's way is better. To, to see, but, but it's not just kids. As adults too, we don't like correction. It's not pleasant, but we need to see that it's good. We need to see that this is God's mercy for us. Maybe some of you have been part of an intervention uh, someone, in a friend of yours or family member addicted to drugs, or maybe in your own life that addiction has caught you and, and friends and, and family members have, have pulled you aside. It's kind of like a surprise party, but doesn't have the same mood, not, not as good of snacks. Uh, but the motive there, the motive behind it, even if it doesn't work, the motive behind that is good. It It's your friends looking at you and seeing this addiction is ravaging your life, and it's affecting your relationships, it's affecting your job maybe, it's affecting your family, it's affecting your life. Maybe your own life is in jeopardy just because of the the way that it's damaging your own body and they're seeing that you're stuck in that, you're deceived, you're not able to see it, and you, you might in that moment resist, and you're thinking, I'm, I'm able to handle this, I'm in control, I, I can stop when I want to, or, or maybe you know that you can, you're, the physical side of the addiction is so strong, and your friends are just saying, left to yourself, there's no way that you're going to be able to pull yourself out of this, and so they're coming around you, not to condemn you and to kick you out of their lives, but actually to draw you in and to, to rescue you from something that they're seeing. If you keep going down that path, it's going to just utterly destroy you. And in, in, in this sense, what we need is divine intervention where God is seeing us in that condition and seeing that the sin and the the next steps and the the path that that's leading down are going to get worse and worse and worse and it's ravaging your life. And so he sends his word. Even, Even right now, this sermon could be God's divine intervention in your life where your eyes are being opened and exposed to your sin to where you're, you're seeing that the, the path of this is there's consequences to this and yet what you should be feeling right now as you're feeling that, as you're feeling that draw in your heart is, is God's grace and his mercy and that though this is, it's mixed with pain and mixed with fear and, and I don't know what's going to happen if this comes into the light for you to see this is God's kindness to me. He's rescuing me He's bringing me out of this, and he's he's bringing me to something that eternally will lead to much greater joy. So how does David respond to this? Because the second half of this is that God, he pursues us to rescue us from our sin with severe mercy, but the second half of this is that that leads to repentance and restoration. Let's read verses 13 through 15. David responded to Nathan, I have sinned against the Lord. Just a brief sentence is all we've got recorded here. Nathan replied to David, and the Lord has taken away your sin. You will not die. However, because you treated the Lord with such contempt in this matter, the son born to you will die. Then Nathan went home. Before zeroing in on David's repentance, I want us to focus first on his restoration. Let's let's look at the end first. I want this to carry us, for this to be the prize, for this to be the goal, for this to be what motivates us to want to walk through that path of repentance, to see the way that David is restored says the language here that Nathan gives is, the Lord has taken away your sin. You will not die. David did deserve death, according to the Mosaic law, for his murder. David deserved to die. And Nathan here pronounces this assurance of pardon over David. He says, the Lord has taken away your sin. David there, think of this, think of, maybe a scene that you've seen on television might have been a real court case or in some movie, a fake court case. Someone's falsely accused of murder and they've gone through this trial and they they are waiting anxiously for the words of this jury, knowing that the next few words are going to determine the destiny of the rest of their lives. One of the jury members stands up and says, we, the jury, find the defendant not guilty. And you've, you've probably seen this. If it's a fake movie, then the music is swelling and you know something like that to, to, to carry this emotion. If it's a real court case that you're watching, though you still have probably seen this where the person just collapses into their hands with this monsoon of emotion that just overwhelms them with gratitude and joy and, and relief and all these things that they are, are feeling as they've, they've been declared not guilty and what that means then for their life. David here, he wasn't falsely accused. He was very guilty. And yet still he hears these words. The sins, the sins that are on him that he's guilty of are weighing him down like heavy chains around his neck. He says that the weight of it, he talks about this later, the weight of it's just crushing my bones. He's feeling this weight. And the language that Nathan uses is the Lord has taken that away. The Lord has taken away your sins. He's, he's removed it. That weight has been removed. It's been lifted and it's, it's been taken far from you. David, David describes this later in, in worship of God, Psalm 103, where he says in verse 12, As far as the east is from the west, so far has he removed our transgressions from us. This is the language. God's God's taken it. And how far has he taken it? Just infinitely far. He's removed it from us. David's rejoicing in, in Psalm 32, looking back on his forgiveness as well. And he says, oh, how blessed, how happy is the one whose transgressions are forgiven. Blessed is the one whose sin, the Lord does not count against them. David's lived this. This is what he's experiencing in these words from Nathan. In verse five, he says, Then I acknowledged my sin to you, Lord. I did not cover up my iniquity. I said, I will confess my transgressions to the Lord, and you forgave the guilt of my sin. This is the restoration that David experienced, the forgiveness that David experienced. As Nathan says to him, The Lord has taken away your sin. As you read on, there's a, there's a restored relationship with God, but then God also restores David in his life. Yes, there are consequences, but at the end of this chapter, you see David, God gives him another son, Solomon. And specifically the language in here is that the Lord has loved him. The Lord has chosen him. God has raised up an heir of David who, who will continue toward this theme of God's covenant with David It's going to lead toward a a future son of David that's coming. So God's restored him in that way. At the end of the chapter as well, David is back leading his army in victory. And so so God has restored David in forgiveness and in relationship to him, but he's also restoring in ways David's life and his his usefulness, his calling. But there's a path to this restoration, and it's what David says says, right before Nathan pronounces this assurance of pardon. It's David's confession. It's David's repentance. He says, I have sinned against the Lord. This is part of, of what sets David apart from Saul. Saul did say, I, I've sinned against the Lord, but he wanted to keep that confession isolated to just the elders. This Saul said, I've sinned, but, but David says, I've sinned against the Lord. Saul says, I've sinned, but he keeps wanting to live in that way. He keeps wanting to make excuses for it. His, his confession is, is pretty guarded. David here says, I've sinned against the Lord. And if we'd only had that sentence, it'd be tough to, to get a full understanding of all that's going on in David's heart. But David also then wrote this psalm, Psalm 51. i I'd like you to go ahead and turn there. We'll spend the rest of the sermon in Psalm 51 looking at the way that David describes what his repentance looks like. What his repentance and confession is. This is the path, just like there's a path toward destruction, deception and sin and lust and self-indulgence and deceit and deadly desperation. There's, there's also a path to forgiveness and restoration and it is, it's through Repentance. Corinthians tells us that godly sorrow leads to repentance. David describes his own godly brokenness and sorrow in Psalm 51, verse 17, where he says the sacrifice pleasing to God is a broken spirit. You will not despise a broken and humbled heart, God. And as you read just this whole psalm, you can hear David's contrition, his remorse, his godly sorrow, his brokenness. There's, there is a worldly sorrow that's, that's sorry for what happened, that's sorry for the consequences, that's sorry for how this is all turning out, that's sorry that I got caught, that's, that's sad about those things, that's different from a godly sorrow recognizing I have sinned against my God. I have chosen evil instead of of righteousness that's truly remorseful, that's not sorry about what it's going to do for you, not sorry about how it's ruined your life, but that is remorseful about the way that you have hurt others and the way that you have ultimately sinned against God. That, That godly sorrow or remorse leads to repentance. There's also confession of sin that must be included. Confession means to say the same thing about it. So for us to to speak about what our sin is and to to put it in the way that God would speak about it. So it's not just in euphemisms. It's not just I I tripped up. I got stuck. I I fell. But to call sin what it is. In verse 13 of of 2 Samuel, David says, "I've, I've sinned. He doesn't he doesn't downplay it at all. I've sinned against the Lord. Psalm 51, verse 3, he says, I'm conscious of my rebellion, knowing that what he did was rebellion against his creator. My sin is always before me. Against you and you alone I've sinned and done this evil in your sight. So you are right when you pass sentence. You are blameless when you judge. David is acknowledging he deserves God's full condemnation. He deserves God's full wrath. He's calling his sin what it is and recognizing and acknowledging that it was evil in God's sight. And I don't think he's saying like, I didn't sin against Bathsheba. I didn't sin against Uriah. I didn't sin against these other families. But he's, he's, when he says, I've sinned against you and you only, he's, he's saying, most importantly, God, in all of this, I've sinned against my creator. I've sinned against my savior. I've sinned against my God. He's He's calling his sin what it is. But then that leads to repentance. And the word repent means to turn. To to turn from from walking down this path and to turn to God in faith, to turn to Christ in faith. It's a change. It's a transformation. It's a change in my heart. It's a change in my thinking. It's a change in my actions. It's It's a turning from everything else that I was trusting in or living for or walking toward and saying, Christ, I am turning to you. We see that. The language that he uses for that is is one of washing and one of renewal and one of restoration. He says completely, Wash away my guilt, cleanse me from my sin. He's not just saying, Forgive me and take away my punishment. He's saying, take away my sin, wash it, wash it away. In verse 10, he says, and create, oh God, create a clean heart for me. Renew a steadfast spirit within me. God, change my heart, which, which will change my spirit and keep me steadfast in that as I'm as I'm wanting to follow you. In, in verse 12, he says, Restore the joy of your salvation to me and sustain me. God, help this to last. Sustain me by giving me a willing spirit that my life would be transformed. I don't want to keep walking down that path. God, God, change my heart. Change my spirit that I will be steadfast in following you and in in living for you. Restore to me the joy and help me to see that this is the path of joy. David's broken. He's, he's humble. He's acknowledging his sin. He's, he's speaking rightly of it and he's desiring. I want to turn away from that and turn to God. And there's one more aspect of his repentance that it's, it's completely dependent on God's mercy and God's grace. Psalm 51, this is how he starts his prayer. He says, Be gracious to me, God, according to your faithful love, your steadfast love, according to your abundant compassion. Verse 7, just one more thought on this. He says, purify me with hyssop. You find hyssop in the Old Testament uh, connected with this Passover ritual as they dipped the hyssop in the blood and they would spread the blood over the doorway. And so David is acknowledging, I need a a sacrifice, the blood that is shed for me. And we know now that this, this Passover, this sacrificial system was all pointing toward the greater sacrifice that they needed in Christ. What can wash away our sins? Nothing but the blood of Jesus. So so let's think about the good news for this. I want to do that by, by thinking again about the son that David lost, the infant son. Some have pointed to this and said, David deserved death because of his murder and his sins. But yet God spared him by putting David's Punishment on this infant son. I don't actually like that. Because the Bible doesn't say that. It does say the death of the son is, is connected to the consequences of David's sins, and there are there are many reasons in that that we don't know all of God's sovereignty in that. But, but the Bible doesn't say this infant son paid the penalty for David's sins it actually says a different son of David paid for David's sins. More like a great, 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 great grandson who the New Testament calls a son of David who came to give his life as a ransom for many. And, and Paul actually talks about this. How, how was God able to forgive the sins of the past? Not just our sins now after the death of Christ, but also those sins that he'd been overlooking and, and forgiving in the past. And in Romans 3.25, he says, this is the the." The crucifixion of Christ, the atonement of Christ shows how God can be just and righteous and how he has forgiven the sins of the past. And I think that includes David's sins. And so how is David able to be forgiven? Not because his son died in his place, but because his greater son, Christ, died in his place. And this is the same hope that every one of us has as well. And this is why we can know but when we're confronted, when we're experiencing God's severe mercy that comes through confrontation, we know that is God's goodness to us, God's kindness to us, that he's, he's reaching down to rescue us. And that even right now, God may be doing that for you. Maybe, maybe you're here and you don't know this forgiveness at all. First time in a church, or maybe you've been here a long time, but you just know in your heart you've never turn to Christ you don't even know all that what I'm talking about of Christ dying for you and I just want you to know as, as you're beginning to hear some of this as you're hearing and maybe maybe beginning to feel some of the weight of your sin and your need as well for for this forgiveness and how can I know that I have peace with God you can leave here today hearing From God, these words that Nathan says, your sins are taken away from you. You will not die. Most most here are following Jesus. You're trusting in him already. You know that he's forgiven you, but yet we still need this. Jesus, Jesus taught us as his followers to regularly pray, Father, forgive our sins as we forgive those who sin against us. 1 John 1.9, we confess our sins. He's faithful and just to forgive us. He has taught us that still as his followers, we'll get off the path and we'll we'll drift and we'll, we'll take steps down this path of destruction, sometimes really far even. And this is God's merciful call to us to return to him, to find in him forgiveness and grace and mercy and life. Let's pray.